The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 23rd, 2019. On this week's show, the undefeated's Jesse Washington will join us to talk about Antonio Brown, the accusations of sexual assault, the Patriots' decision to cut him, and Brown's declaration that he's quitting the NFL. Jesse Washington will also talk with us about his story on Andrew Johnson, a high school wrestler who is instructed to cut off his dreadlocks or forfeit his match. Finally, the ringer's Ben Lindbergh will be here to assess the Cubs and Red Sox, the long-suffering franchises that haven't been suffering all that much lately, but have been suffering this season. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. I feel like there's a first-time, long-time, first-suffering, long-suffering thing somewhere buried in there, Stefan. Yeah. I have no sympathy for either of those franchises, though. Your sympathies, as always, are with the long, painfully suffering New York Yankees. That's right. It's been a while. It has. Go Bombers. Yay. They won the division. Woohoo. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. A little less than two weeks ago, Antonio Brown's former trainer, Brittany Taylor, filed a civil suit alleging that Brown sexually assaulted her three separate times. Five days later, Brown caught a touchdown in his first game for the New England Patriots, who'd signed the wide receiver after he essentially forced the Oakland Raiders to release him. A day after Brown made that touchdown catch, Sports Illustrated's Robert Klimko published a story about one one lawyer called An Unfortunate Pattern of Entitlement and Narcissism, a series of events in which Brown refused to pay a trainer, a chef, and an aquarium guy for services rendered and generally behaved terribly. That story also contained an additional accusation of sexual misconduct. This one levied by an artist who'd been commissioned to paint a mural of Brown. She said that she was fired after refusing his advances. After that story came out, Brown sent that woman a group text in which he called her a super broke girl with a lot of kids and asked one of his cronies to look up her background history. SI published those texts on Thursday. On Friday, the Patriots released him after one game played. Joining us now is Jesse Washington of The Undefeated. Way back in September 2018, Jesse wrote the first piece that really took a deep look at Brown's life, how he was portraying himself on social media, and what that portrayal obscured. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that introduction was very long because there has been uh, a lot of allegations going on around Antonio Brown, and then there have been his responses. And I think It's appropriate, given what you wrote and also given the news this past week, to start with social media. On Sunday, two days after his release, Brown tweeted that he wouldn't be playing in the NFL anymore. He also tweeted out references to Robert Kraft's arrest for soliciting prostitution. Also, Ben Roethlisberger's four-game suspension after Roethlisberger was accused of but not charged with sexual assault. 
What do you see there, Jesse? Has Brown given up on trying to convince people he's a good guy and now he's just arguing that other people have also done bad things? Well, it's hard to figure out or or describe the actions of an irrational person. And I think that clearly he's reached the stage of being irrational. Um, but what I think is happening here is really fits the same pattern that I observed going back a couple of years now, which is when there is a conflict with somebody, Antonio will always lash out. He will attack them. He will try to say the worst things possible about those we feel are somehow doing him wrong. It's an unfortunate case of, it seems like it's an alternate reality that he lives in. So it's not new what's going on. And him tweeting at Kraft and Roethlisberger and these type of folks and the things he's saying and the, the way he's uh, texting the woman who's accusing him, it really fits the same pattern that I observed going a few years back. Your story really did a terrific job, Jesse, of sort of unmasking the the contradictions in Antonio Brown's life. Um, you know, you mentioned attacking people. I mean, you sort of document his treatment of a former trainer and of a chef and of uh, of others that were in, in his orbit, including the mothers of his children. How should we even parse Antonio Brown? I mean, two weeks ago, we were looking at it as, you know, this is partly the Raiders doing, you know, an erratic front office and a weirdo coach. And that script kind of got thrown out the window pretty quickly. Yes. And it's interesting how that always comes around when AB has these conflicts with people, then he's very good at saying, well, yeah, well, what about what you're doing? And yeah, well, Ben did this and, and that and the third. And then there is a certain amount of support that he gets for that. I have people up in my mentions right now on Twitter talking about why are you picking on Antonio and giving Robert Kraft a pass? And so he, he's very good at that. And it, it reminds me of the behavior that you see sometimes in young people who are trying to deflect attention from their own misdeeds. I thought you were going to so, say, it reminds me of the behavior that we see from our president. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody did tweet at me a Trump comparison with AB. Um, and uh, there was a few interesting parallels there, shall I say. Um, not limited to hair. But anyway. You can't spell whataboutism without AB. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, the behavior that we're seeing is just when you think that it, can't get any more bizarre. It does. Why would he bring up Ben Roethlisberger at this point? You know, shouldn't he have done that before? Like, but I think he's kind of reaching the end of his rope of lack of accountability and running out of places to go. And so he's just lashing out in any way, shape or form that he can. Let's talk about the Steelers for a bit, because when all the stuff was going on with the Raiders, with him sitting out because of his helmet and the cryogenic uh, foot issue. I feel like the Steelers were kind of retroactively congratulated, like, wow, they were able to really keep Antonio Brown productive and happy for a really long time. And we didn't know about any of these issues. And, you know, Mike Tomlin deserves credit for keeping the team together when you had this erratic personality. But looking at your story, and all this behavior that you documented that happened when he was on the Steelers, could we flip that around and say that the Steelers are actually enabling him and weren't, I don't know what, what we would have wanted, whether it's suspended him or gotten him, you know, suggested that he get treatment or, or I don't know what, like, how do you look at the Steelers role in this? 
it's some of each, I believe. There was definitely some enabling. And and Mike Tomlin said it. There's a, a quote that's pretty infamous here in Pittsburgh where he said, uh, different, and I'm paraphrasing, different, different people get different treatment depending on their production. A.B. did not have to stay in the dorm rooms at training camp. He got to stay in a nice, plush Airbnb because he's A.B. Uh, and so I, I think that that was definitely the enabling stage of of his career. They tried to hold him accountable at certain points, most most uh, notably when he did that Facebook live video from the locker room and, you know, embarrassed his coach and, and violated league rules. They tried to hold him accountable. And Ben Roethlisberger also tried to hold him accountable in certain instances when he's throwing tantrums and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they were unable to, and he got to a point where he felt he could do like whatever he wanted. And people really forget his exit from Pittsburgh was about as ugly as ugly gets. He got in a spat with Ben during practice. Uh, it's reported that he threw the ball at Ben's feet, stomped out of practice on a Wednesday, was AWOL Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. This is before must win week 17 game. And then Sunday had his agent call Coach Tomlin and say, AB wants to play. And that was when they had finally had enough. And and then he even spun his exit out of Pittsburgh as some side of some sort of financial empowerment. So to answer your question, I think that the, the time in Pittsburgh, they want to get the most out of their investment and they want to win games. And he was stupendously productive on the field. But in the greater scheme of things, it did contribute to the problem and enable this type of behavior we're seeing now. Stefan, I think there is a tendency to think about behavior towards the press to excuse it a little bit or then maybe we think of ourselves. We think of it as maybe navel gazing if we get upset when a player acts atrociously toward the press. But you know, as Jesse documented in his piece, Antonio Brown called a reporter a racist for saying that he was limping in practice. Um, you know, Jesse, you received a DM from Antonio Brown. I don't know if you would describe it as threatening, but he said, bro, stop hitting my people up looking for stories. Stay in your lane. Like, is that a thing that the Steeler, the Steeler should have been alarmed by, that we should have been alarmed by? The Steeler certainly should have been alarmed by that. I mean, you have an employee that's basically acting out against members of the media who are credentialed to cover their organization. I mean, yeah, it's a fraught relationship sometimes, and players resent the presence of reporters in the locker room and on the sidelines. But that doesn't. I mean, it's, look, it's written into the CBA that reporters have that that players have to treat reporters well and respond to questions and make themselves available for exactly specific times during practices. Um, so the, the, I think the failure, though, goes beyond, you know, disciplining A.B. It's got to be more to the like, how do we help A.B.? I mean, the one thing that NFL teams aren't great at, even with superstar players that they need production from, is acknowledging that they have a problem and helping them to get professional help for that problem. It's usually the flip. It's take Toradol and get back on the practice field the next day. So, you know, the bigger issue here is what does the NFL do when it when it encounters a player who seems uncontrollable? How do you deal with that? And every team here failed. The Steelers failed, the Raiders failed, and the New England Patriots who didn't bother to vet any of this stuff. I mean, three days after the Patriots signed Antonio Brown, thinking that they could contain him and they would be 
the uh, help to to turning his career around. Sports Illustrated comes out with this 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 report documenting more problems with his behavior, really serious problems with his behavior. It's interesting the part that you mentioned with relating to the press and the Steelers and how they responded to it. He tweeted at me, uh, we're going to see what that jaw like on a Friday. On Tuesday, Coach Tomlin was asked at his at his regularly scheduled uh, meeting with the reporters, hey, what's up with AB threatening to go at Jesse? And he basically said, whatever, don't bother me with any of this social media stuff. Uh, local media the next day went to the Steelers and, went and said, hey, your franchise guy is threatening to punch reporters in the face. Do you have a response? At which point they the, the team issued an apology or, or AB had some scripted apology through the team. Uh, and so nobody really took it that seriously. And there is always this tension. And I'm not far from the first journalist to be for to for a player to say, I want to punch you in the face. And I didn't really take it as a serious thing that was going to happen anyway. But it was part of the enabling aspect of it. The Steelers were trying to win games and they needed Antonio to win games. And they wanted to kind of manage the situation rather than, as Stefan says, help somebody who's obviously out of pocket. That's another similarity to Trump, right? Like when you ask um, Republicans about what he tweeted, they're like, oh, I don't look at his tweets. Like that, like the fact that they're on social media media makes them less real when in fact whether it's with Trump or Antonio Brown that's like the only thing about them that they that they really share that's where you know they're the most kind of open with their thoughts and with their feelings and then just to like wave it away and pretend like it doesn't matter seems like not an acknowledgement of the world that we live in and what your piece back in 2018 was so smart about Jesse was the way in which Antonio Brown used Instagram to cultivate this image that was incredibly popular with fans and also with corporations. I mean, Nike just dropped him, but was like a huge, huge supporter of his. And let me just read the quote that Jesse got from a Nike spokesman (laughs) in his story. AB has a charismatic personality. His energy, attitude, and focus is infectious. His love of fashion combined with his dedication to his family allows us to leverage him as a partner who can connect with many different Nike consumers. (laughs) AB shows his most authentic self in social media. Well, I guess you could say that AB does show (laughs) his most authentic self in social media. We've certainly learned that. Yeah, now he does. At that point, he did not. And that's really fascinating. Thank you for reading that. That made me feel good stuff. I'll pay you after the show. (laughs) At that time, he had this real family man image up there and just everything is great. And look at these wonderful relationships that I have when things were sort of falling to pieces. And that's what I found so interesting at that time and, and ironic about the Nike spokesman saying he shows his most authentic self. But, you know, Josh, right now you're right. We are seeing A.B.'s, these tweets going at Ben, going at Kraft, pointing the finger at everybody else, uh, is that is A.B.'s most authentic self right now. I mean, he lives his life on social media, and he's not alone in that. There's a lot of young people who, who, who roll like that. And it's like it's an alternate reality for him because you can block anybody. I've only been blocked by one person in my whole life on social media, and it's Antonio Brown. And so you don't have to hear anything you don't want to hear. You don't have to see any criticism or listen to anybody you don't want to listen to. You can create your own reality in which down is up and up is down. And that seems to be where AB is at right now. 
friend uh, asked an interesting question. I'm curious for both of you guys' um, responses, which is if Antonio Brown hadn't made so much news with the Raiders with his feed and with the helmet, would all of this stuff have come out and would he be out of, you know, potentially out of the league? Was it inevitable that at some point this was all going to come down on his head? Or is there an argument that he kind of brought it on himself by bringing all of the attention on himself? Was it like Tiger Woods driving into the fire hydrant? I definitely think it would have come out anyway, because as I was reporting my story, there were several other really problematic situations, people he had not paid, people who he had threatened uh, via text and things like that. But at that point, they were afraid to come forward. And so some of them I was not able to get on the record. Some of them I could report on the record. And most of these people were not taking any action. They were just kind of sitting back and being scared because he had all the leverage and all of the, the narrative on his side. But once my story came out and then he had a lot of incidents uh, in 2018 with his season with Pittsburgh, speeding tickets, uh, throwing furniture out of uh, a high rise, allegedly. Um, and when I say speeding, going 100 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone, and then the misbehavior at the end of the season, and then the way he left Pittsburgh, people started to say, well, maybe people will believe me. And then more people started to come out. Before the Sports Illustrated story came out, there was a guy from Miami who said, he owes me $30,000. He just stiffed me for a $30,000 bill for cooking for him for the whole Pro Bowl. And so more of these people started to come out. So I do think it was inevitable because uh, they would see, well, maybe people will believe me because this image isn't what it seems. I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the Patriots and the NFL and where this goes from here. I mean, the Patriots, again, did not exactly cover themselves in glory here. They clearly didn't do enough vetting. Um, they thought that they could, as I said before, rein in Antonio Brown. And then when the shit hit the fan and it became uncomfortable, they released him and put out this statement. And this is the entirety of the statement. The New England Patriots are releasing Antonio Brown. We appreciate the hard work of many people over the past 11 days, but we feel that it is best to move in a different direction at this time. And that was it. And Belichick, Bill Belichick, as is his want, asked about Antonio Brown, says, I want to talk about the Jets. I'm not going to talk about anything else. And walked off of a press conference, walked out of it. Then before the game on Sunday, yeah. when Dana Jacobson asked him about it, he gave her a death stare. And I think reporters need to keep asking him and the Patriots about it, Jesse, even if it's uncomfortable. And even and I think especially if it's uncomfortable and he doesn't answer, because they need to like sit, they need to be forced to like sit in this mess that they made and not just say, we're on to Cincinnati. Like, Ask them about it relentlessly. Right. And I want to ask you, Jesse, I mean, when this was all going down in Oakland and then he gets signed by the Patriots, what were you thinking having spent all this time immersed in Antonio Brown's life last year? I was thinking that he had escaped accountability again. And that's a pattern that he has of really of trying to spin a situation so that, well, I'm really doing something that's empowering for me or the Steelers didn't treat me right. Ben didn't treat me right. Uh, the Steelers didn't give me the money I deserved. 
And he has a sizable contingent of fans out there who are like rah-rah for AB. So when I saw him go to New England and get signed that quickly, then I said, well, the pattern continues and he's he's been able to duck accountability again. But at the same time, I was wondering when these incidents would catch up with him. I mean, I have people on my phone all the time saying, you know, all sorts of uh, pointing me to all sorts of reporting trails. And, and then when it became sexual assault, then it took a whole new direction. And now we're not talking about unpaid bills. And now we're not right. talking about uh, firing a, a chef or a trainer. We're talking about criminal activity potentially. And so I think that's where we really have to start looking at the Patriots and how eager were you to just to get out back to the Super Bowl instead of doing the right thing. The Patriots are arrogant, and I think they've earned that arrogance, you know, in an on-field way because they win a lot of Super Bowls, in case you haven't been paying attention. But this notion that they can take anyone and have them be subsumed to the Patriot way, and then if it doesn't work out, just move on and say, you know, shrug and say, why are you even bothering to ask me about this? How dare you? Um, is, I think, worthy of reproach. And Antonio Brown is now being investigated by the NFL. If we're creating a list of enablers, I think his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, is kind of constantly talking about, oh, everybody wants to sign AB. And, um, he so, did it over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, he clearly is still in the kind of buffing Antonio Brown's image business. Um, and we'll just have to wait to see what the league decides as far as a potential suspension. He could be suspended while he's a free agent. Um, and also, we're going to have to see if the Patriots end up having to pay him his signing bonus. There's going to be a grievance there. So a lot of exciting developments still to come. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Back in December, a referee ordered a high school wrestler to cut his dreadlocks or forfeit his match. Video of the team's trainer hacking off Andrew Johnson's dreadlocks went viral nine months ago, but it wasn't until last week that the New Jersey Attorney General announced that the referee in question, Alan Maloney, would be suspended for two years. Jesse, you wrote a long story for The Undefeated about Andrew Johnson and Alan Maloney. It went live last week, and we'll link to it on our show page. Can you explain for us what you found when you went deep on this story? What I found there in New Jersey was, number one, the ordeal that this family went through and this young man can't be underestimated. To have the whole world looking at your most humiliating moment um, as a high school student is a horrible thing, as a mom and a dad or a brother or sister is a horrible thing. So I spoke to people in South Jersey who said, my mom doesn't even speak English, but she saw this on Telemundo. And so that's how big the story was. That's the first thing I saw. What this family went through was very difficult. It was compounded, their pain, because they were placed in a no-win situation. If they spoke up against the injustice that they experienced, then it would be very hard for them to navigate life in their small town, which is majority white, 
It's one of the places in America that went from voting in for Barack Obama in 2012 to Donald Trump in 2016. This kid lives in a very much an all lives matter type of environment. And so for him or his family to speak out about the injustice the experience would have put him in a very uncomfortable situation. And then on the other hand, you've still got the uh, the wrestling association, the state that administers these contests is trying to say, not only did we cut your dreads off before, and this is a little known part of the case, but they tried to outlaw the dreadlocks that he had left. They tried to send out some new interpretation of the rules or update interpretation saying, hey, your hair is still illegal. And that was very painful for him as well. So it was really a deep situation that um, I was glad to be able to bring to light. I was stunned at the complexity here. I mean, you watched the viral video and you read the stories initially and you thought, white ref, black kid, dumb rules. And then your reporting, Jesse, really reveals just how complicated, particularly just the family dynamic here. This is not black and white. And and I mean that literally and figuratively. I mean, this family is not black. Just exactly. Black. This is this is really naughty and affecting. Very much so. Drew Johnson, the kid who had his hair cut off, is not a black kid. And if you really, he doesn't really fit himself into one particular category, but if you sort of want to bear down on it, he's half Puerto Rican, a quarter black and a quarter white. And it seems silly to assign these percentages, but hey, that's the way America does it. Um, both of his parents have one Puerto Rican parent. And yes, I'm well aware that Puerto Rican is not a race, but it is an ethnicity and an identity. And so here is a kid trying to at age 16, in a mostly white environment where he's walking around and most of the world looks at him as uh, a black kid with a white mom, he's trying to sort out his identity. And any black person will tell you that hair is a very inescapable part of our identity, the how we present ourselves to the world. People touch your hair. Oh, it feels so different. Oh, it feels so soft. So he grows his dreads trying to sort out who he is and establish his identity in the world. For them to be cut was just beyond horrible. Another thing that was really interesting about revisiting this case is looking at the criticism, not of uh, just of the ref, but of the people who didn't step in and stop the trainer from cutting off his hair. And, you know, the criticism went uh, up to his, his parents. Like people thought they should have run down to the gym floor and said, you know, this isn't happening. Um, kind of what did you find there and what did you end up thinking about the actions or, or inactions of people in that regard? That criticism really disturbed me because I thought it was typical of this social media age, very shallow and based on more of an assumption than information. They're down there on the mat and his coaches are passionately arguing with the referee that his hair is legal. And then the ref, who is known as a, as a domineering, um, my way or the highway at the very least type of person cuts off the conversation and starts a 90 second clock. And at the end of that 90 seconds, he's going to forfeit the match if his hair is not what the ref decides is legal. So now the kid is faced with a really tough choice because this is a big match. It's a rival. They need this win to win the conference championship. Wrestling is huge in this small town. They have a long history there. And he's got 90 seconds to do one thing or the other. So he took one for the team. And this is the point when that 90 seconds clock started ticking, that's when his parents figured out what was happening. 
So if they were to run down out of the bleachers, by the time they got down there, A, the match is going to be forfeited. Their son's hair is going to be half cut off already anyway. There was nothing the parents could have done. There's nothing that his coaches could have done. The trainer did what Drew asked her to do. There is one administrator who may have been able to intercede, and that was the athletic director. And that will probably be adjudicated at a later date. The Johnson family has returned an attorney. But the community in general was horrified at what was happening. They were not indifferent. Mm-hmm. They were you when I watched the full video that is not available on social media of what happened, when they start to cut the hair, you can hear people in the crowd screaming, No, no. And so the community was very supportive of Drew in that respect. And I think it's unfair to say that they let it happen. Drew is a wrestler. He wanted to wrestle. He wanted to win his match. And he did. The overlay of racism here is clear. This referee, it was reported later, had been accused by another referee of using, of calling him the N-word. And not a long time ago, it was like in 2016, you visited a um, uh, two barbershops in this town, one with Drew to get his hair cut and the other a white barbershop, for lack of a better adjective. And the people you talked to there, man, it was just so deflating and sad. The defense of the referee saying that the kid was violating rules, saying he had gotten away with it for several matches. The whole thing is disturbing. And you also, in the story, Jesse, you know, you, you quote the rule as you should, and the way that the referee applied it, and it's kind of shocking. You read the thing, and it says that the hair in its natural state shall not fall you know, over the earlobes, down around the, below the neck, on the neck, blah, blah, blah. And the, the interpretation of what constitutes a natural state is is what's at, you know, ultimately was the defense that the referee used for giving this kid an ultimatum, cut your hair off, which I, white, bald guy, have determined is not natural or lose and lose for your team. Absolutely. And and I did find that the less hair that these white guys have, the more hostile they were to dreadlocks. Or maybe that's just me, uh, (laughs) you know, as as a balding guy uh, said. But, you know, (laughs) The barbershop was, I was shocked at how casual and stunning and blatant their just unfairness and and unwillingness to contemplate that any hair different than white hair could be normal, you know, and, and a total disregard for what the actual rules of wrestling are. Drew's hair did not violate the rules in terms of length. His opponent actually probably had illegal hair in that match when he and when Drew did not. But to call Drew's hair unnatural, and this had gone on for some years before with this referee. He had this ref had a thing for dreadlocks. This ref did not like dreadlocks. In the ruling that came out, the investigation from the Civil Rights Division of the Attorney General's Office of the State of New Jersey, there was testimony from the referee that we didn't get until until last week. And in it, he said he did not know the difference between cornrows or braids and dreadlocks, but both of them are unnatural. Now, this referee had been told over the years by other refs, look, dreads are not unnatural. Your hair naturally grows that way. You don't need a treatment or a perm or a conch or a jerry curl. This is just how some people's hair grows. But he really disregarded that. And so a lot of people beyond the referee just refuse to acknowledge this is what black hair is and does. It's not a menace. It's not a safety concern. 
and they call it unnatural. And of course, this really extends out to so much, metaphorically speaking, of the black experience in America where whiteness is the norm and anything other than that is considered aberrant, dangerous, or cause for concern. Whether it is your name, and if you have a stereotypical black name on a resume that is summarily rejected by a potential employer, or whether it is when you walk in to apply for a job and you are turned down as a black person with a clean record at rates higher than those of white people with felonies. So that's why I think this story really hit home. Metaphorically, it speaks to the broader black experience in America. So circa 2019, you can go viral for doing a good thing. You can go viral for doing a bad thing, uh, to put it in very stark terms. I apologize. But um, this is something in the middle where Drew Johnson went viral for having a thing done to him. And you could feel in the story just how complicated that was for him. He's obviously had people sympathize with him and, and feel bad for him. And he's celebrated for you know winning the match and, and all of that. But that doesn't take away the pain, this experience. Like based on your time with the family, how do you think all of that kind of adds up and, and balances out now that we're you know a little bit far out from the event? I think it's a cautionary tale about social media and you know everybody wants to go viral. They want this fame, they want those clicks and likes. And Drew did not have any choice in the matter. His family did not have any choice in the matter. And also let's not forget that when things go viral, you are subjected to all of these opinions that are usually not well-informed. And so for a kid who places outsized importance on social media, and that's a bigger part of their day-to-day than, than it is for a lot of adults, then to have to deal with that is tremendously difficult. I think it's going to take Drew some time to get back to normal because uh, even when I went into the gym uh, for the first time to try and see if I could talk to him and his family, and I made it a point not to approach him. I sat in the very back row of the bleachers, and later his mom said, Drew knew that you were somebody who was there to see him. So he's on hypersensitive alert at all times. So he's going to have to get over that. Hopefully he'll be able to wrestle this season in peace. And then his family has to get over being, oh, there, there they go. There's that family. A lot of people are not happy with the outcome of uh, the ref being suspended. They feel that he did nothing wrong. So they have to live in and amongst those people every day. So I'm not sure that a family does ever really get over this. Maybe that you can go back to normal, but it's going to stay with them, I think, for quite some time, if not forever. I think it's worth pointing out, Jesse, that the family agreed to talk to you and agreed to, to let you spend time with them, but they did not want to be quoted. Um, you wrote the story around the family's um, absence in terms of their voice, um, and that took some courage on their part, and I think it also... Probably, well, you tell me, was it a result of, of their initial interactions with the media right after the event happened? Or had they come to this place sort of over the months of reflecting on the impact on them and, and their son? I think the family immediately and wisely decided that they would not talk. And they could have they could have spoken. They had their choice of any media outlet in the country. And uh, I think that they wanted to protect. This is a set of very... Um, loving and capable and wonderful parents who wanted to protect their children in a tough experience. They have two kids who are younger than Drew. 
and they're caught up in it as well. Uh, these were people who had satellite trucks parked in front of their house going up to Christmas Eve. And so this is the environment that they're in. So they wisely said, we're not going to talk to anyone. But I, at the same time, I sensed and, and, and heard a real, when you experience something unjust, you want to unburden yourself. And so in my conversations with the family, particular members of that family, really had things they wanted to get off their chest. They wanted to tell somebody how they felt. And they were able to tell me that, and I was able to corroborate those feelings and kind of figure out a way to, to tell the rest of the world, hey, this is what happened to this family. It's a lot more than you think. It's a lot more painful and more complicated than you think, but this was their experience. And then they didn't want to do it in a very public way because if they had gone on television, then it's hard for them to live every day in their town because people are mad at them for making a big deal out of it. Their township, Buna in South New Jersey, wanted nothing more for this whole thing to go away. So anytime the family spoke about it, it was perceived as you're making a big deal out of something that should not be an issue. And so I really respect them for the way they handled it. And I think that they showed a lot of courage. Jesse Washington writes for The Undefeated, and we will link to his story about Andrew Johnson on our show page. Jesse, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Okay, I wanted to let you know that our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Jesse Washington, will stay with us to discuss Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, there are a lot of black quarterbacks in the NFL now. That's a good thing. Yeah. We'll discuss the state of the black quarterback in the NFL. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus, just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Jacoby Brissett. If the Boston Red Sox and Chicago Cubs were ever cursed, they were not ever cursed. But if they were ever cursed, they are no longer. Boston has won four World Series since 04, including last year, after winning zero in the 86 years prior. Well, the Cubs won it all in 2016 after their own 108-year drought. But this year, this year has not gone so great for either franchise. The Red Sox at 81 and 74 with a week to go in the regular season have already been eliminated from playoff contention. The Cubs are at 82 and 74. They're four games out in the wild card race with six to go. Joining us now to discuss the Red Sox, the Cubs, and some teams that have surprised in a positive way 
is our friend Ben Lindbergh. He writes and podcasts for The Ringer, also the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast and the co-authors of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and most recently, The MVP Machine. Welcome, Ben. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Uh, Let's start with the Cubs. They have the highest payroll in the National League. A week ago, they were leading the wildcard standings in the National League. They're just two games behind the Cardinals for the division lead, and they had come off a weekend series, which they swept the Pirates by a combined score of 47 to 15. I think there were <laughs> record run scoring records set in that weekend series. Since then, though, they've lost six straight. The last five of those were one run losses. The last four of those were one run losses to the Cardinals. Is this just a horrible run of luck that uh, often happens in baseball, Ben? Or have these losses exposed something real about this Cubs team and how the Cubs more broadly have been constructed? Yeah, it's been a really disastrous week for the Cubs. They were playoff favorites, at least wildcard favorites this time last week, and they haven't won since. And they did a lot of that losing against their division rival. Meanwhile, the Brewers, with whom they've been competing for a wildcard spot, have kept winning even in the absence of Christian Yelich, their superstar. And the Cubs lost those six games. As you mentioned, the last five are all one-run losses. Those six games, they lost by a a total of seven runs cumulatively. And usually when you see a lot of one-run losses in baseball, that can be a sign of just some bad luck and some things going against you. It can also be a problem with your bullpen, let's say. And the Cubs have had some spectacular bullpen meltdowns primarily from Craig Kimbrell, their star closer, formerly star closer, who was signed at midseason after going all winter without a free agent deal. And he has just done his utmost to sink the Cubs season in the limited time that he has had so far this year. I think it's important to note that the Cubs are still a pretty good team. And in fact, by run differential, they are the best team in the NL Central. So they have done a better job of outscoring their opponents than the Cardinals have this year. And the Brewers have actually been outscored by their opponents on the season. And yet they are in line for a wildcard spot right now. So there is a lot of variability in baseball and good teams not necessarily being playoff teams. And I think the Cubs are seen as especially disappointing because, of course, they put together this great young core under Theo Epstein. They won the World Series in 2016. It seemed like the potential was limitless. They were just a a great team, a juggernaut at that time. And this core, it looks like unless they continue to win in the future, which is very possible, they've only won two division titles. And that, I think, would be seen as somewhat disappointing, stipulating, of course, that the Cubs winning a World Series really almost makes all of it irrelevant. I don't think Cubs fans feel that way. I think they're plenty disappointed by this team. But getting that monkey off their back, getting the World Series win after the long, long drought, I think you have to say mission accomplished regardless of what happens after that. I mean, you could certainly say that this is as it should be, that, you know, Theo Epstein put together a World Series champion for the first time in a century in Chicago, and now the expectations are higher. So this does qualify as disappointing, and it should qualify as disappointing. And it's not surprising that the axes are out for everybody, including Joe Madden, the manager, who, as of very recently, walked on water in baseball circles. I mean, there are reports that Madden's going to be gone, his coaching staff is going to be gone, that there is dissatisfaction at higher levels of the of the Cubs organization. Is that an overreaction here, or are there structural deficiencies that are going to be difficult for the Cubs to fix? 
Yeah, Madden's on an expiring contract, so it's very possible that they will make a change there. And Theo Epstein has said that there will be a reckoning. He has put it in almost biblical terms that if the Cubs didn't turn the season around, there would be changes. And they've already made some front office restructuring. I think one thing you could say about the Cubs is that maybe they were a little late to this current player development revolution that I wrote about in the MVP machine, that a lot of these other top teams were at the forefront of that movement, and the Cubs weren't so much so. They built this current team around position players, around hitters, which seemed like a smart strategy because those guys tend to be a bit more predictable. They don't get injured quite as often. And it worked for them. Obviously, they won the World Series, but they have utterly failed to develop pitching. So they've done a a decent job of, say, trading for guys and getting them to be better guys like Kyle Hendricks and Jake Arrieta. But in terms of pitchers they have drafted during this regime, they've gotten almost nothing out of those guys. And what are you talking about? They had Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's going back a bit. So, yeah, I, I think when you look at that, that's something where I think they've examined themselves as an organization and said, what are we doing wrong? And do we have to make changes in player development? Because even Even if you do have this young cost-controlled core or used to be cost-controlled core of guys like Chris Bryant and Javier Baez, you still do need to get pitchers from somewhere. And so they've made a lot of trades where they've given up top prospects who've gone on to success elsewhere. They've signed a lot of free agent starters who haven't really succeeded or have succeeded to varying degrees. So they've had trouble kind of putting the finishing touches on this roster. And so it's still been a very competitive team, but they haven't really sustained that level of we're going to win the division every year the way that, say, the Dodgers or the Astros have. When we're talking about fan satisfaction, uh, I think it's important to remember that they had a five-game division lead last September, blew that, ended up in a tie for the division lead, lost the playoff game for the division, then lost a wild card game. So this is now, I guess, a storyline for the Cubs that they, or or at least whether it's a storyline or not, we can say definitively that they have had two bad Septembers in a row, and that's going to lead to fans wanting change, wanting a new manager, wanting new players, Mm -hmm. whatever. And, uh, you know, Theo Epstein is a guy who reputationally and based on track record, I think could have the standing to be like, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And Mm -hmm. yet it doesn't seem like that's what he's saying. Yeah, it seems like he's pretty discontented too. And he deserves some of the blame himself, I think. And He's at the point now where he's been with the Cubs for about as long as he was with the Red Sox in his first go around as a GM. And at the tail end of that time, he made some mistakes, too. And it seemed like it was just time for those two to part ways. So there's something to be said, maybe for refreshing things every now and then, especially if it's a manager where, you know, the impact on wins and losses is kind of tough to discern. And maybe there's value in just making a change for the sake of making a change and saying we're not complacent and we're going to keep you on your toes and try something new. So, and you know, it's funny, like Madden's reputation as a manager has probably suffered during his time in Chicago, even though he's had great success, even though he won a World Series there. I think his managing during that World Series really was seen as counterproductive, if anything, and that the team kind of bailed him out about that. So his reputation as a genius, as a tactical genius, at least that he had in Tampa Bay has sort of fallen by the wayside, although I think he's still seen as a good leader of men type. Ben, the obvious link here between the Cubs and the Red Sox, who, oh, I'm so sad, have had an awful season as well. 
um, is Theo Epstein. And the other link is that the Cubs and the Red Sox have the first and second highest payrolls in Major League Baseball this season. The Red Sox were first, the Cubs were second. Not to plug your book one more time, but the MVP machine, part of the argument is that payroll isn't as determinative as it used to be. It's about different ways of building teams and exploiting the inefficiencies that the market used to have in under playing and underrepresenting and underserving younger talent. The Cubs and the Red Sox haven't done that as well as other teams. Is that right? Yeah, I think you could say that uh, probably with the Red Sox, you know, you look at the strengths of their current team and it is their homegrown, home developed players. Those guys have actually been about as good as they were last year in the World Series winning year. So the Mookie Betzes and Rafael Devers and Benintendis and Jackie Bradleys, those guys, Sander Pogarts, they've all had excellent seasons. That roster has kind of fallen apart with the guys they acquired via other ways. And and some of it is just sort of, you know, a team that was playing perhaps a bit above its head, regressing. The Sox had one of the most successful seasons of all time last year. They won 108 games in the regular season, and then they blew through the Yankees, the Astros, and the Dodgers and won a World Series. I don't know that they were necessarily the best team last year, even though they were clearly the most successful. I think you could have made a case for the Astros and the Dodgers being better than the Red Sox last year, but the Red Sox were the team that won it all. And one thing they did perhaps as a result, and this is sort of a pattern, you see teams that win the World Series often standing pat and bringing back the guys who got them there. And sometimes you can get a a bit complacent where you say, well, we're going to re-sign all of our playoff heroes, even if they weren't necessarily guys that you would want to commit to. And so the Sox say signed Chris Sale to an extension and then he had kind of an injury marred season and wasn't as effective. And they brought back guys like Nathan Evaldi and Steve Pierce, who had pretty disastrous seasons, but they were World Series heroes. And, you know, you look at that team, the roster was essentially almost identical to what it was last year. They really didn't do much tinkering. They entered the year without an established closer or late inning bullpen guy. They just kind of kept everyone around because things had worked out so well. And as often happens after a season when everything goes right, a lot of things don't go right or don't go right to the same extent. So I think the Sox are still fairly decently positioned going forward, much like the Cubs. Like neither of these teams is on the precipice of disaster necessarily. It's just that things did not go quite as well as they have in recent years or quite as well as were expected. They did fire Dave Dombrowski, who is in charge of baseball operations in Mm -hmm. the season after winning a World Series, which is a a bold move. (laughs) I like it. Yes, very bold. Yeah, and Dombrowski's teams had all been very good. He'd made the playoffs. He'd won a lot of games. So it was a very unusual firing from that perspective. And part of it was just that he's seen as kind of the closer when it comes to baseball executives. You, You bring him in when your team is almost ready to win, and he essentially trades all the prospects you have for good players. And then you win a World Series, but you sort of strip mined your farm system which is what happened. The Red Sox don't really have prospects anymore and they won. So that was kind of his mandate and he he achieved it. But at this point, he's not really seen as the guy you want to rebuild your team and bring in talent. And, you know, he's on the older side when it comes to GMs and he is known more for trading and signing guys than he is for developing prospects at this point. And, and that really is kind of the core of winning in baseball these days is making sure that you have these young cost controlled guys 
who you can count on to win for several years, whereas free agents, you never know if they're going to keep producing after the first year or two. And obviously, owners want to win while spending the least money possible. And that's not really Dave Dombrowski's specialty. He is going to shell out some money to win, and it works. But if you're John Henry, the Red Sox owner, maybe you think, well, I can win without having the biggest payroll in baseball. Let's talk about the Twins. Are the Twins the most surprising good team in baseball? Mm -hmm. So nobody was really talking about them going into the season as a good team. And then if we want to drill down a little bit, nobody was really talking about them as the greatest power hitting team in the history (laughs) of Major League Baseball. Um, I for one, have never heard of Mitch Garver. (laughs) I was going to make that point myself. That you had not heard of Mitch Garver? Is Mitch Garver a real person, Ben? (laughs) Mitch Garver is a catcher who is, I think, 28, and he's basically hitting like peak Mike Piazza out of nowhere this season. So he is a real person, but you are not at all to blame for not knowing who Mitch Garver is. I had heard of Max Kepler because he's German, and that's kind of weird. Nelson Cruz, obviously, is a guy who hits lots of home runs. He's had like the most home runs in all of baseball in the last five or six years, right, Ben? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then he's pushing 40 at this point. Then Eddie Rosario. Also have not heard of that guy. Also has <laughs> more than 30 home runs. I would have said he was a pitcher. <laughs> so where did they get all of these guys? And do the Twins, does their front office deserve credit for assembling the greatest power hitting team <laughs> in the history of baseball? Or is this just like not dumb luck, but like luck luck? Yeah, well, the Yankees may still hit more home runs than the Twins do this year, so the Yankees may retain their title as the greatest power-hitting team. And of course, every team is hitting for power in this year of the juiced ball, but the Twins have been probably the top surprise team, perhaps the only surprise team really this year, at least on the positive side. I guess you could throw the A's in there because they weren't expected to be as good as they've been, but they were just as good as this last season. It's just that no one really believed in them to do it again. In the Twins' case, only the Dodgers this year have more wins above replacement from homegrown players, so guys who've been in this one organization their whole career. So it is largely just guys who've been with the Twins for a long time who are now coming up and coming together and making reaching a new level of performance. And they've really dramatically reshaped themselves as an offseason, as an organization just in the past couple seasons, because the twins were like this bastion of old school thinking and they never changed any executives. They had the same people in place for years and years. And they were kind of the last team to embrace like the launch angle revolution and swinging up and trying to hit home runs and trying to throw fast fastballs and strike guys out. They were still trying to hit singles off the artificial turf, even (laughs) though they're not on artificial turf anymore. Basically, yeah, this is like the mirror image of what the Twins have historically been. They have not been a team that really swung for the fences, at least with any success. And they haven't had pitching staffs that struck guys out and threw hard. And now they've gotten on board belatedly with those trends in baseball, and they've imported executives from other teams like Cleveland, like Texas. And so they have these guys running the team now who are sort of diametrically opposed to the old school Terry Ryan regime that was entrenched there for years. And they also just reshape their coaching staff. They have a new manager this year, Rocco Baldelli from the Rays. They have mostly a a new coaching staff. They have a new pitching coach who was pulled directly from college and They've done a really good job of player development this year at the major league level. So they've had their hitters be more aggressive and swing early in the count when you're more likely to see strikes. And they have pulled the ball much more than they used to, which is something that teams are trying to do these days. You realize that 
pulling a ball in the air is the best kind of batted ball you can have because that is more likely to be a home run. And so you don't get the sort of swing down, use the whole field, you know, hit the ball the opposite way mentality that you had for years in baseball. And so the Twins have just done a really good job of making the talent that they already had in the organization better than it was. And so they've surpassed expectations in that way, while also making some smart additions like Nelson Cruz, who was a guy they signed as a free agent this past winter. So they're kind of the model team, I guess, this year when it comes to turning things around quickly and getting on board with some of the newer ideas that teams are using to succeed these days. Josh, do you know who the first baseman on the Twins is? Is it C.J. Crown? Had you ever heard of him before? <laughs> I've heard of C.J. Crown. Really? Everybody's heard of C.J. Crown. No, you're sure. making household up. name. <laughs> <laughs> nice try embarrassing me on my own podcast. <laughs> I was going to sure. say, I was going to admit that I haven't heard of him, so there. The other teams in the American League that you could say are certainly surprising are the other teams that are likely to make the playoffs. So the Tampa Bay Rays have the lowest payroll in baseball at about $63 million compared to the Red Sox $230 million, something like that. And the Oakland Athletics, once again, are are there. Mm -hmm. How do these two teams sort of compare to the Twins in terms of reconstruction or, or because they seem to sort of every year have a system to be close, um, are they in a sort of different category? Yeah, well, these are not teams, obviously, that were part of the old school and then reimagined themselves. These were the original Moneyball teams, right. really, the A's and the Rays. And they have managed to succeed over the course of decades here, even as other teams caught up and maybe surpassed them in analytical firepower, let's say. They keep finding ways to compete. And this year, the A's and the Rays are number one and two in baseball when it comes to wins above replacement obtained via trade. So they've really just out-traded teams, which is kind of a, a difficult blueprint, I guess. That's a tough roadmap to follow, just like swindle other teams, but they have managed to do that. So the A's have guys like Marcus Semien and Mark Canna and Ramon Laureano and Liam Hendricks. I mean, speaking of anonymous good teams, by the way, you can't really beat the A's for players with no name recognition who uh, are yes. actually good. Liam Hendricks, my yes. old pal Liam. <laughs> and the Rays have guys like Tommy Pham and Austin Mitchell. Meadows and Tyler Glasnow, guys they've gotten from other organizations that have really paid off for them. And they're both really good defensive teams, which I think is still something that we tend to overlook and maybe we don't project as well. So I think we focus a lot on who's on the pitching staff and who are the hitters and how many home runs are they going to hit. But we don't do a great job of accounting for, well, how many batted balls are they going to turn into outs? And both of these teams have excelled in that respect. And they've done some innovative things, you know, like the A's have gone after fly ball hitters and done a really good job of limiting fly balls for other teams, which is very important in this era when so many fly balls are leaving the ballpark. And then you have the Rays who really innovated. They pioneered the use of the opener that has caught on around baseball. They have this really just devastating pitching staff that, again, has a lot of guys whose names you probably won't know, but they use them in the most optimal way as possible. So it's kind of tough because you look at this playoff field right now and you can't really say that there's one way to win, like there's one model that every team is following. There are a couple teams, of course, that went the tanking extreme rebuild route, the Astros, who really took that to the greatest extreme. And then you could maybe lump the Braves in in that category, too. 
But that's about it. And then you have the Yankees and the Dodgers who are smart, but also very rich. And then you have a bunch of other teams that have just won in some cases without ever really being bad. Like you look at the Brewers and they never really bottomed out in the way that the Astros and the Cubs did. They kind of just rebuilt on the fly and were smart about trades and free agent signings. And so it's tough to boil it down to one narrative and say, well, everyone's doing the Astros thing and the Cubs thing. And that's how you win in baseball. There are a lot of teams that won in different ways, some of them kind of unpredictable and surprising and pretty fun. You never really know what's going to hit you, but Rocco Baldelli manager just today has made me feel old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, he's he's still a pretty young guy. He retired early. So, But that's kind of what a lot of teams are doing these days. If they feel like they're falling behind in some respect, they will then hire people from the leading teams, and those teams will import the philosophies that worked for those smart cutting-edge teams, and then suddenly the laggards kind of catch up all at once. And so that's what we've seen, although we are still seeing a lot of stratification in baseball now where you have these really excellent teams and really terrible teams. Ben Lindbergh writes and podcasts for The Ringer. His latest book, co-authored with Travis Sochik, is The MVP Machine. We've mentioned it a couple times because it's good. Ben, <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Now it is time for After Balls in the Saints-Seahawks game on Sunday. Saints victory, Stefan, led by Teddy Bridgewater. There was an untimed down at the end of the game. Based on my knowledge of you as a sports viewer, I feel like you'd be a fan of the untimed down. The untimed down is wonderful. Time stops. It doesn't <laughs> exist. It is like the most. Mm, <laughs> Stefan is making hand gestures. Sort of infinity bending. You know, it's the space-time continuum thing. It's, it's the untimed down. There could be an infinite number of untimed downs if there were just defensive penalties because the game can't end right. on a defensive penalty. Football the game could never, never end, end despite there being... No clock. Um, a thing that I learned is that in Canadian football, uh, I am reading from the Wikipedia right now. In Canadian football, if the clock runs down to zero during a dead ball, the offense runs one final untimed down to end the quarter, half, or game. The untimed down is rampant in Canadian football. Just another reason. To love Canada. Or move to Canada. Or just watch Canadian football on TV. Stefan, what is your untimed down? Last week was homecoming week at Wilson High School here in D.C., and as part of the activities, the junior and senior classes squared off in the annual game of powder puff football. The senior girls wore pink eye black and black and pink t-shirts reading, We May Look Cute, We Don't Play Cute. Dozens of boys wore sports bras cheerleaders in drag. The seniors won six to nothing. Students stormed the new turf field to celebrate. I don't think I'm alone in finding it a little strange that the kids at my daughter's very woke urban public high school choose to continue a century-old tradition designed to reinforce rather than challenge gender roles in sports and society. The idea here being that football is our most masculine activity. Girls aren't allowed to play it for real. Let's have them play it for yucks. The term powder puff, meaning a pad you used to apply powder to the skin dates to the 17th century. Its use as an adjective meaning weak or effeminate is more recent. The first citation for that sense in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1911 when a boxer named Oscar Battling Nelson called Adolphus Wolgast 
the Michigan Wildcat, a dainty powder puff champion. The phrase powder puff football was used in the 1920s and 30s to fearmonger the alleged jazz era ivory tower sissification of the game. In his column, Sports Antic Dope, there's an exclamation point after dope there, Josh. We really should do a segment on the names of sports columns of your sports antic dope. George Alderton of the Lansing State Journal wrote in 1930 about Newt Rockney's forecast about the powder puff football teams of the future. An Ohio newspaper story that year said the local football has not been powder puff football, but neither has it been the manslaughter type. At the same time, sports for girls and women received the powder puff appellation. They call it the Powder Puff Tournament, but don't let that fool you. A 1935 dispatch about the AAU Women's National Basketball Championship began. The girls trim in their scanty uniforms, come up with black eyes and other evidences of rough, tough play. Bumped and bruised, the Powder Puff teams do their weeping, if any, in the privacy of their rooms. According to Michael Oriard's book, King Football, powder bowls in which girls in rival high school classes or college sororities played football against one another date to at least 1922. That was when American Pathé News documented a game at Wellesley College. At least a dozen such games appear in newsreels of the 1920s and 30s, Oriard wrote, enough to make powder bowl a familiar term. By the late 1930s, powder puff football is a game played by girls or women had two meanings, charity games and serious football in pads. Both were treated as spectacles for objectification. There were pictures of punters kicking like showgirls or one player stretching the extended leg of another with the caption, lass down. Long tapered fingernails have been ruled out of the powder puff bowl football game at the University of South Carolina. The AP reported in 1945. The story didn't say whether that was to avoid injury or because Delta, Delta, Delta and Phi Beta Phi hated each other. Though the nails have been ruled out, the football lassies will be given every opportunity to repair bruised lips, straggling coiffures and dirt smeared cheeks. In 1964, after the New England delegation at the World's Fair in New York scheduled a powder puff football derby, a reporter for the Hartford Current asked, is hair pulling considered unnecessary roughness? And when you get a bunch of gals charging around, just what is illegal backfield motion? That reporter was a woman. I found examples through the years of powder puff hazing, powder puff brawls, and tackle powder puff, the last of which in Jupiter, Florida, seems to have ended in 2017 after a 50-year run. Google turns up page after page of current flag powder puff games. South Newton High School in Indiana makes parents sign a powder puff waiver and provides three pages of rules, including no rolling or tucking of flag in belts or pants, and and unnecessary violent behavior will result in players' ejection from the game and may then be subject to further disciplinary action. Some school districts of late have canceled powder puffs, citing injuries, liability, or the fact that, you know, it's sexist and retrograde and perpetuates outdated notions of women in sports. Powder puff football is a mockery of girls a student at Cherry Hill High School East in New Jersey wrote in 2014. But kids love tradition. Students at other schools have petitioned their administrators to keep Powder Puff alive. Powder Puff's survival seems especially weird at Wilson here in D.C. for another reason. 
The school actually has a girls football team. DC added flag football as a girls sport a few years ago, but only after it was accused in two separate complaints of violating federal Title IX standards. Josh, what's your untimed down? This past weekend didn't just represent uh, the probable end of the Cubs' 2019 playoff hopes. It was also the last Cubs home game broadcast by WGN-TV, which has been showing the Cubs on TV in Chicago since 1948. There are going to be a few Cubs road games this coming week, but after that, it's donezo for the Cubs on WGN. The first ever telecast for WGN in March 1948 was a Golden Gloves boxing tournament. A month after that, Jack Brickhouse, who had broadcast Cubs games on GN from 48 to 1981, wrote a piece for the Chicago Tribune in which he explained that for the next few years at least, sports coverage will be far and away the most important single element in television programming. The stages are built, Wrigley Field, Comiskey Park, Chicago Stadium. The show may be a red-hot pennant fight or the blazing finish of a football championship race. The Ingrid Bergmans and Barrymores of the sports world go by the names of Williams, DiMaggio, Trippy, Lou Jack, Cavaretta, Appling and others. Lujak! Their filming takes a minimum of manpower compared to that needed for a big studio production. In advance of WGN's first Major League Baseball broadcast, an exhibition game between the Cubs and White Sox on April 16, 1948, the Tribune reported that the baseball shows will be relayed with the aid of the station's new mobile unit from the ballparks to the transmitter atop the Daily News building. Special telephone circuits will also be employed. Three of the latest type image Orthicon cameras will be used by WGN-TV. One of them includes the new $7,500 Zoomar lens, so-called because it zooms quickly into focus, enabling the cameraman to change from distance shots to close-ups with the flick of a finger. Thanks to all those fancy lenses, sports on television did indeed catch on. Good prediction, Jack Brickhouse. The Cubs caught on nationally, too, when in 1978, WGN became the second so-called national superstation, following Ted Turner's Braves televising TBS and being carried on cable systems all around the country. Three years later, in 1981, the Tribune Company, which owned WGN, bought the Cubs, and Harry Carey came over from the White Sox to replace Brickhouse as the Cubs' television voice. It is this version of the Cubs, the Superstation, Cable TV, Harry Carey Cubs, that I grew up with in the 80s in New Orleans. My grandfather in his retirement would watch and or sleep through Cubs games in the afternoon. Night games were not a thing at Wrigley Field until 1988. I don't want to get all Doris Kearns Goodwin here, and I acknowledge that it feels a little silly to feel nostalgic about watching a not very good team on cable that I didn't even root for. Uh, It's not quite peering through a hole in the fence at Ebbets Field, but I was a huge baseball fan as a kid, and this, to a large extent, was baseball for me. After the 1980s, the cable dial expanded with new channels. ESPN started broadcasting a lot of national games. Superstations lost their sway. The Braves and the Cubs were, for a very brief time, national franchises. And then, and now today, like most every other franchise in Major League Baseball, they have predominantly local appeal, although there still are pockets of uh, the nation that uh, you know are full of Cubs fans and Braves fans owing to the Superstation days. Ten years ago, the Tribune Company sold the Cubs to the Ricketts family. In 2013, the Cubs announced they'd be opting out of their deal with WGN at the end of this, the 2019 season. Starting next year, Cubs games will be broadcast on something called the Marquee Network, 
in Chicago. It's a new partnership between the Cubs and dun 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 the Sinclair Broadcast Group. Stefan is grimacing. WGN still has the White Sox, if that's your thing. It's not that many people's thing, but it's a few people's thing. I personally choose to be nostalgic for the days of Ryan Sandberg, Jody Davis, Bob Dernier, Leon Bull Durham, and hundreds of visiting players whose names Harry Carey could never quite pronounce. Those were the days. And that is our show for this day. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, perhaps you would like to stick around for more Hang Up and Listen. And our bonus segment this week, we talked with Jesse Washington of The Undefeated about the state of the black quarterback. We get stuck on the stereotypes, and I'm not really sure how much they apply anymore, but it's still hard to get out of them. And I don't think that you can blame the black fan base for really celebrating or paying close attention to what these guys are doing because we've never had this opportunity before. We have never had the opportunity to be the face of the league. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.